Your reward will be the widening of the horizon as you climb. And if you achieve that reward, you will ask no other. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, baby Cecilia Penkoposhkin. Another great name on the podcast, born in 1900, specifically December 7th. Indeed, and she has been Space Legend of the Week, probably about a year ago, I would imagine. It was about a year ago. It's not an easy thing to get in our Space Legend of the Week. It really isn't. So you have to be bloody good. Well, we didn't have time to do one this week, but we've got an interview no. with a Space Legend, haven't we? We do. We. I'm very excited. This is something we've been after for months, and we finally made it happen a while back, and we've just had some great interviews. So it got backed up a bit, didn't it, Matt? Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We've got it ready today. We can't wait. Shall I tell people who it is? You go for it. It's Dr. Doreen Boyd, um, Associate Professor and Reader of the University of Nottingham School of Geography. She's incredible at what she does is amazing, isn't it? And we'll go through it in the interview later. Yeah, Can't yeah. wait for you to hear it. Well, it kind of, it, it kind of, it's a whole new meaning to the usefulness of space. Some things that really people is. don't necessarily think about the usefulness of space. And when people are whinging about spending money on it. Yeah. Why do we spend so much money putting these satellites up? Well, today you will hear why we do it. Part of the reason why we do it. So there we go. And actually, I'm going to talk about this as well, Jamie. So last week we reported about ESA's, um, the, the Space 19 Plus Committee had uh, approved the largest ESA budget ever, the European Space Agency budget ever, which gave the green light to a bunch of missions. And one of those I want to talk about today is oh. Athena. And like you said, not to Go be on, confused man. with the poster manufacturer or the family of rockets or a NASA proposed mission of a palace flyby, not palace as in... Buckingham Palace, but Pallas, no. the, the very large asteroid or minor planet, I suppose. Uh, no, it's it's the Advanced Telescope for High Energy Astrophysics. And if you, you squeeze all those letters together, you get Athena. It's going to be the second of a large class of missions in the ESA Cosmic Vision program. Absolutely incredible. The Cosmic Vision... Uh, will be 10 missions, Matt, small, medium, large and fast, one of which is the first small class. Your favourite, I think, S1. The S1, right? yeah, the small class. Uh, that's the that's the Cheops, an exoplanet examiner. Now now we're talking. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's going to that's gonna be launching later this month. So that's going to be super exciting. Let's not jinx it. No. We often do this. No. So that's a small... Good luck, Cheops. That's a little small one, and it's going to go off and, and look and examine sort of relatively close exoplanets. Then there's a, a medium mission. The first of the medium missions is M1, uh, and that's going to be the Solar Orbiter, which is going to be very similar, I suppose, to the Parker Solar Probe, mm. the NASA one, uh, which, which apparently lots of data is coming back 
and uh, science is already being done. So it's it's that's been really successful. So hopefully the ESA one will be as well. And the first of the large missions, L1, I think is probably your favourite mission, which is what? It's Juice. It is. <laughs> the... Which is Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer. Doesn't really spell Juice, but, you know, what does Juice stand for, Matt? Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer. <laughs> well. Yeah, no, it, Jupiter, J-U, Icy, yeah. Icy. An E, Explorer. Yeah, but they left out Moon. I know. Idiots. <laughs> they have, actually, haven't they? It Just be... to try and be cool. Yeah, they couldn't get left it Juicy out. Ice Explorer. Do you know what, Jamie? Juice is the first non-American mission to the outer solar system. Get out. Yeah. And then you've Jesus. got the first of the FAST missions, F1, not as in Formula One, but fast mission number one, the Comet Interceptor. There's some good names in here, isn't there? I talked about the Comet Interceptor with Chris Lintot. He mentioned it. So, shall we speak about Athena? Yes. So, Athena is L2. So, L2 meaning large second mission. So, you've got your juice followed by Athena. There we go. Which is going to be the largest X-ray telescope ever built. And it's now under development for a launch on Ariane 6, hopefully, in 2031. Bless you, Ariane. Always makes me think of our good friend over at ESA. Ah, yes. Good old Julio. Helping to launch these incredible missions. Uh, Jamie... We were yeah. talking about what's the point of spacecraft and what's stuff. What's the point? Now, yeah. this spacecraft, its mission, if it chooses to accept it, is going mm-hmm. to be the following. It is going to try and answer two of the most puzzling questions from astrophysics. Oh, hell yeah. How ordinary matter assembles along with the invisible dark matter to form the wispy cosmic web that pervades the universe. I can tell you the second one. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is one I like. How supermassive black holes at the centre of galaxies form and evolve. Yeah. Well, it'll also have a look at all these other high-energy astrophysical events. Yeah. Short gamma-ray bursts and stuff like that. This is what Matteo Guanazzi, a scientist at ESA, this is what he says. Athena is going to measure several hundreds of thousands of black holes from relatively nearby to far away, observing the X-ray emissions from the million-degree hot matter in their surroundings. Apologies. We are in particular interested in the most distant black holes, those that formed in the middle few hundred million years of the universe's history, and we hope we'll be able to finally understand how they formed. Sorry to any Italians that were offended by that. It got a little bit Count Dracula near the end, I thought. It did a little bit, yeah, a little bit Sesame Street. It's quite hard, isn't it, to maintain a silly accent over several sentences? I can do it, but then I, I you say I sometimes drift into Indian, <laughs> which will be fine soon. I was going to say you're going to be Mumbai, drifting but... into India. Notice that it, yeah. often when we have, uh, when I'm quoting Indians, I, I, I kind of resist the temptation. I think it's okay to do European accents. Yes. Oh, no, and American yes, accents. Absolutely. I think that's okay. Yeah. 
So it's okay. It's okay. Jamie, there is a there is one uh, X-ray space observatory that I think really doesn't get mentioned enough, and that's XMM Newton. Yes, and uh, really should get mentioned a bit more, shouldn't it? Yes, I was in ESOC and saw the guys actually flying it, literally at a desk, sending it commands and doing stuff. Wait a minute, don't don't we have a guest soon talking about Chandra? We do. We have got some guests coming talking about Chandra, absolutely, which is the American Ooh. equivalent. So Chandra is the big American X-ray telescope, and XMM Newton is the European one. And they're both well, it's been, a hell of a cliffhanger. They've both been fantastic. But XMM Newton launched almost exactly 20 years ago today, on the 10th of December 1999. So this week, we'll actually see the 20th anniversary of XMM Newton. That's so cool. Happy anniversary. Well, and yes, like you said, Jamie, we've got um, people talking, uh, we've got some guests coming on to talk about Chandra. Why am I going? Why am I talking about those? Because back in the early 2000s, ESA, JAXA and NASA were all working on X-ray telescopes to replace their existing ones. Uh, ESA had one called Zeus. How cool is that? <laughs> but spelt with an X. I'm saying nothing. Zeus. And NASA had Constellation X. Yeah, I like both. These things are really expensive. So they merged them together to form the International X-Ray Observatory, or IXO. And that involved all three space agencies, JAXA, ESA, NASA. Uh, and in 2008, yeah. that's when they were all having these discussions uh, to put together IXO, which was a phenomenal um, space X-ray observatory. And uh, unfortunately, NASA, because of the sort of um, James Webb Space Telescope overruns, had to pull out. Uh, and so JAXA dropped out as well. ESA, yeah. basically, they thought, well, we, we want to carry on with this. So they uh, Athena was born. This is the point where it was born. Now, ESA had been developing this whole new uh, technology um, yeah. called silicon pore optics, which I'll get onto in a second. Silicon pore optics. Yes, yeah, P-O-R-E. It sounds complicated. Because something can be silicon pore because it doesn't have much silicon in it. And there's different types of pores, isn't there, Matt? Yeah. There's pores in your skin. Yeah. There's, do- there's dog pores. There's pores to stop a recording. Oh, yes. Pouring milk. There's pore <laughs> as in financially poor there's sympathy poor as in oh poor matt oh my god there's so many pores That's, that is actually incredible how many pores there are but this is poor p-o-r-e there's i think there's more there's poor patrol sorry that's enough i think there's more i think there's more rays actually do you know what's and the weird thing about the pores is is to is to actually focus the rays and rays i think has more yeah, there are quite a few yeah, rays. like rays are building to the ground you raise me up. Ra- razor building to the ground? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah, that's, you said that right? Yeah, that's right. Razor building to the ground. I never knew that. Questioning my use of the English language. Matt, how could we question <laughs> you? The all-knowing, <laughs> the all- never getting anything wrong, Matthew Russell. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Matthew Russell. Ladies and gentlemen, he never makes a mistake. It's Matthew Russell. <laughs> Cue the applause. Um, but remember, oh, when we first started the podcast, Jamie, the uh, there was a yeah. JAXA had a 
X-ray telescope called Hitomi. Just oh, after yes. it was one of the very first episodes, the thing had span itself to death mm. because of a poor bit of... Sad, um, really sad. I mean, imagine if this happens to this, because the technology that goes into these things is absolutely incredible. X-rays, Jamie, are just light. Tell They're me. just light, right? And, and I think this, this really is incredible, isn't it? That, that Sometimes you just think of these space telescopes as a bit like a telescope that you've got down here that you point around and look at stuff and they get a little bit better. Yes. But no, virtually every single one of these space telescopes that goes up is, is, is just got heaps of new technology, like completely new technology. And, that's, and it's the next step of looking at stuff. X-rays are light. And so light bounces off mirrors, but the more energetic the light gets, you can't just bounce it straight off a mirror. If you're standing in front of a mirror, the light of your reflection reflects straight back at you. It doesn't. It's not the same with x-rays. You can only reflect them at a very, very small angles, very shallow angles. Okay. You know, a bit like skimming a stone across a lake. If you shot a bullet, at a at a, a piece of wood, it wouldn't bounce back at you; it just go straight through. Whereas if you shot right. shot a bullet at a kind of angle, it bounce. It you can get it to kind of skim off. Yeah. So it's very similar to energetic X rays. Now XMM Newton had three sets of fifty eight gold plated nickel mirrors, and they're all nestled inside one another, and they have and they slowly bring the X rays into focus. But if you okay. want Athena's resolution, instead of having 58, you need tens of thousands Whoa. of these things. So they needed to invent something new. What they've done is each of these little tiny silicon pore optics stacking loads and loads and loads and loads of mirror plates made from silicon wafers, like tiny silicon wafers, little wedges on them to okay. kind of exact put the exact angle in and everything else the pores in the silicon wafers acts as a volta one type double reflection grazing incident uh telescope oh it's my favorite type of incident yeah it, i think it's something like a million or over a million of these pores in these thousands and th hundreds of thousands of stacked up little mirrors so this technology was actually invented at isa by one of their mission scientists. I can't find the name of the actual scientist who did it, but it's a, it's a scientist at ESA invented okay. this tech technology. And again, like I said, wow. it's it's so important that that ESA each time they put one up one of these new telescopes, it's a it's an entire new invention. It's incredible, isn't it? My God. Well, we have to find the name of that. Yeah, person no, absolutely. To give them props. Well, and there's a company called Cosine who who build these things and it's actually quite cheap well i say cheap it's obviously ridiculously expensive but um mm. it's cheap because of course um already silicon we know how to work from silicon because uh the semiconductor industry has already made it really really cheap to do and and they've done all the kind of r d process about how to machine it and yeah. process it so all of that kind of stuff's being done now this is what eric weiler 
said about it. Now, he might be mm -hmm. the inventor because he's the ESA optics engineer, Eric Weiler, who, work, who oh. works on this. And he says, We produced hundreds of stacks using a tray of automated stacking robot. Stacking the mirror plates is a crucial step taking place in a clean room environment to avoid any dust contamination, targeting thousands of a millimeter scale precision. Our angular resolution is continually improving. Where's he from? <laughs> He's from Scotland. <laughs> Very strange. Yeah. Uh, the, st <laughs> the stacking is the most innovative part of the manufacturing process, and that's that's what they've spent all their money on, these tiny robots that stack these mm. these wafers that have got these they almost look a bit like roofing um corrugated roofing but obviously very very miniature and they stack them up on one another and then coat them in gold blimey so these are just each of the little modules and then as you've made modules of stacks and stacks and stacks of these mirrors all stacked up on teeth on top of each other, these thin wafers. Uh, you've then mm. got to put hundreds of the mirror modules really accurately on uh, to make this entire optical bench. And then the optical right. bench is made by these robotic arms and they will create the largest, most complex object ever 3D printed in titanium. Sweet jeez. Uh, Matt, just while you were talking then, I went on to one of my favourite websites, which is the International Astronautical Federation. Yeah, the IAF. Connecting space people. Mm -hmm. um, and I just checked out Eric's profile and it said that um, he is responsible for the development of a new concept of X-ray optics named Silicon Pore Optics. So maybe he is. Which was successfully demonstrated over the past years. So there we go. I think it is down to so Eric. So maybe it is Eric is the inventor, yeah. Yeah, there we go. Twin yeah. robotic arms. That So one prints with a laser smelting metal titanium powder, melting it and, and building up the layers. And the other robot yeah. arm comes along and cuts away any imperfections. Now, this whole process is so ridiculously complicated because this it's got to be done to the unbelievable precision to a few tens of micrometers. And you've got to make sure that, that there's no, um, absolutely no contamination so that the milling tools are all cryogenically cooled so that there's no heat distorting anything and... Uh, everything's blown away with argon gas and stuff like that. And so it's incredibly complicated. <laughs> and of course you climb me. My head hurts just thinking about it, Matt. And you can, and you can basically, you have to, every, as you're sort of printing, you have to make all the adjustments there and then because you can't go back in to modify it because it would mm. contaminate it. So, Oh God, yeah. yeah, that's not good. So it's it, it it's it's just being built up layer by layer, and basically it's so complicated and so accurate that three D printing in that particular way is the only way they can think about making it. People are clever, aren't they? Yeah. So basically, yeah. So Athena will be this absolutely amazing X ray observatory. With um, every time you say Athena, Matt. I just think of posters, am yeah. thrown back to my yeah childhood where I used to I used to go into this 
poster shop, Athena. And I always used to look out for the um, poster of the lady showing her bottom, the, the famous tennis yeah. player showing a bit of her bottom. Yeah. And yeah, that's what I'd go yeah, to. Yeah, and the other famous one was a, a very hunky man holding a baby, and everyone was like, hmm, that's so thought provoking. Oh, it's funny. So I used to go to the tennis player, and you'd scroll through the to the hunky, hunky bloke. Matt, I mean, look, Matt, it's, tw- it's nearly 2020. Can everyone just chill out? I was moved by it, Jamie, that even hunky... Hun- yeah, that's what I heard. That's why you got thrown out of the shop, wasn't it? Because it moved yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> even hunky men, Jamie, can look after children, which, I've, which, yeah, I've, they can. which in some ways I've proved for the last 15 years. Jamie. Yeah, yes. Here's a coincidence. You know, I said that Athena was L2 as in large mm. class number two mission. Yeah. Guess where it's going to? Guess where it's going to be Halo orbiting? Go on. L2. Lagrange what? point two. Come so on. So it's going to be L2 at L2. It's like L2 Shut squared. The front door. Or L squared, two I mean, squared. <laughs> it's just a beautiful alignment, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that is quite cool. 1.5 million kilometers from Earth. Well, you haven't said Lagrange in a few I haven't, podcasts, haven't. so I bet you're happy to release I that. I am quite happy to release the Lagrange. You raised it to the ground. <laughs> yes. Well done. <laughs> well, oh, dear. Uh, yeah. And of course, L2 is ideal for astronomy because it's, it can communicate with Earth. It's, it's reasonably near. It can keep the sun, yeah. Earth and moon behind the spacecraft at all times. And so it can shield all the telescope uh, while at the same time being powered by the sun. Get in. So, yes. Unfortunately, the L1 and L2 points, as you know, Jamie, as we've discussed, are unstable. So it has unstable. to do a little bit of uh, a little bit of jiggery pokery every twenty three days or so, just to get itself back into into the proper L2 point. So it will have to do station keeping. It's also the home of the Planck Telescope currently and will be the home of the James Webb Space Telescope. Oh, don't say that. Makes me worried every time I, I you know say it. it. And that's also going up on an Ariane spacecraft. And Ariane are, are going to have their 40th anniversary this month, which is pretty cool, isn't it? I'm working on a track, actually, I'm going to do for the podcast. Maybe I'll do it next week. Which is a track called Ariane, Are You Okay? Ariane, Are You Okay? Are You Okay, Ariane? <laughs> yeah, it was basically that. Uh, that's not you working on a new track, Jamie. That's that's you covered. Oh, don't worry. I'll, I'll get some sick beats ready for next week <laughs> to go with it. Okay. But do you know, do you know, what, do you yeah. know what's going to make this mission even more exciting? Go and on. this, again, links in with one of our very first podcasts, is um, a few years later, a couple of years after this one launches, in 2034, the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, LISA, will be launched. And between them, they will be able to tell us so much about the universe. That is incredible. I, I can't wait. I mean, we're getting so close to knowing so much more than we already do, yeah. aren't yeah, we? Yeah, well, with, with these. I mean, we were discussing it was the golden age of astronomy, but when these, when when the super large telescopes on Earth and the very large telescopes on Earth and these amazing space observatories are all functioning, we're going to be yeah. seeing some incredible things, aren't we? 
I just think they need to get us to name them. Yeah. I quite like Athena. Because these... Oh, no, actually, Athena, you're right. Athena is a pretty boring name. You know, it's been used quite a few times already as well. Just a bit boring, you know, when they're like, oh, we've we've made a large telescope. What should we call it? Um, LT? It's like, oh, Jesus. Mind you, they did... Come on, guys. They did call the, the, the next Mars rover the Franklin rover. You must be pretty chuffed yeah, about well, that. Yeah, well, obviously... Obviously, that's because I made a, I made a pretty stern phone call. Bit, bit of a fuss. Yeah, they just wanted to call it the um, VSR, the very small rover, and I was like, I'm not having it. <laughs> very small rover. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think, pathetic. I think isn't it's it? a pretty big rover, if I'm honest, Jamie. Yeah, but it's small on Mars. Mm, yeah, compared to the planet, I suppose. Yeah, um, that's what I mean. So, yes, Athena, about 300 observations a year that it will manage to get through. And occasionally, a couple of times a month, it will be targeting things that have just blown up, like gamma ray bursts and other transient events. Uh, it's supposed to last for four years. Now, bear in mind, XMM Newton was supposed to last 10, and we're just about to hit 20. So uh, Athena, although it's it's slated to last four years, it will probably last at least ten years doing marvellous thing. It's a beautiful, marvellous thing. I'm endorsing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So ja- yeah, Jamie, yeah. today, as we record this, the fifth, the fifth of December. Um, yes. Uh, uh, Falcon Nine is about to take off. CRS nineteen. Ooh, and, that sounds exciting. Yeah, and then tomorrow, an electron. Yeah, from uh, New Zealand. Sick. Tick. Then the same on the same day, a Russian Soyuz. The next day, a Chinese Shangzhou One A, and a, probably another Shangzhou One A as well, on the same day from two different Jeepers. sites. And then later on in the week, another Soyuz, and then a PSLV. So. We've got the Americans, the New Zealand, the Russian, the Chinese, the Russian and the Indian all in action this week. It's a busy launch week. God. Damn, it really is busy, isn't it? Slow down, lads. We're trying to keep up. And lasses. Sorry for saying just lads. There's a turn of phrase. It's quite exciting, isn't it? And it's also the week. It really is exciting. The Crew Dragon managed to deploy the it's Mark III parachutes for the seventh time, meaning it's only got three more times to go for good old certification. Yeah. That's what we want. Good luck, everybody. Um, it's also something that's literally just appeared on the Discord that I think is worth noting, is that yeah. uh, some scientists in the New England Journal of Medicine have, re- oh, have yeah. reported that humans exposed to less stimuli... Their brains shrink. What? So yes, this was this was a bunch of people on a fourteen month Antarctic survey expedition. They had their yeah. brains scanned, and they shrank by seven percent in the hippocampus because the hippocampus well, is so prone to isolation. Jamie, everything shrinks in the cold. I mean, you're you're on the ice. Yeah, I don't. I, don't, I think they probably took that into account. Uh, I, I mean, think it's like when I go swimming in the local Lido. We've also seen the crash site. Uh, we've seen the crash site of the Indian yes. first lunar lander. So that's been confirmed as completely smashed into bits. Uh, so there, yeah. was, there, there was no there was no going back for that one. 
Uh, Dark days. Yeah. Uh, we've had Doug Levero, who is um, Bill Gerstenmeyer's replacement. Big Doug. Yep. Uh, as the boss of human exploration at NASA. Uh, he's been saying how SLS is absolutely mandatory for humans back well, to the moon. hell yeah, it is. So, yes, and uh, Jim Bridenstein, he thinks that it's nowhere near going to cost $2 billion per SLS launch, like everyone's been saying. So a lot of kind of defending SLS. Well, as it should be, right, Matt? Mm, another of Boeing's... I'm going to defend it. Are you going to defend it? I'm, I, I'm yeah. going to sit on the fence. I'm going to sit on the fence with it. Yeah. Boeing's uh, CST-100 Starliner commercial crew vehicle has slipped a couple of days, so we're not going to see that launch until December the 19th. Cheers, Boeing. <laughs> I did like the pictures of it mounted to its Atlas V launch vehicle. It does look very cool. It might look cool, Matt, but stop making me wait for stuff, please. Mm. The other one in interesting you know? is SpaceX are halting work in Florida on their Starship prototypes. Focusing on the Mark III, yeah, eh? South Texas. So that's that's something that's worth looking at. I don't quite understand that story. So we'll have a little eye on that. Jamie, would you like yeah. to listen to our interview with Dr. Doreen Boyd? Oh, I thought you'd never ask. Let's roll Let's it. The Interplanetary podcast putting the ace back into space so i'm really excited to introduce our next guest it is dr doreen boyd uh professor at the school of geography university of nottingham and the rights lab um dr doreen boyd thank you so much for joining us uh you're more than welcome so i think it's a great place to start if you can just introduce uh yourself and a little bit about what you what you do at the university uh, yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I'm an academic at the university, so um, obviously that entails uh, all that academia throws at me um, and my research interests uh, over the last sort of, 25 years or so have been around using uh, satellite um, Earth observation data. So essentially, you know, the Google Earth stuff that you see um, um, on the, uh, the, the the Google uh, provision, um, and you know, when I started 25 years ago, the idea of uh, Google Earth was uh, you know uh, way out there. Um, but uh, but now um, we we do have that, um, and it, it's a really good example of how the sort of technology is, is is changing and and moving on. Um, and all the time we have satellites orbiting our Earth of different types of satellites um, designed to do different things by different organisations, whether they be um, a space agency like NASA, uh, most people have heard of NASA, or, you know, a commercial um, organisation, uh, or actually more and more now kind of individuals sort of thinking about what, uh, how they might uh, piggyback off, uh, off, off satellites and, and use them to observe the Earth. But the focus for all of that is um, what can we see um, about our Earth um, to help us understand, obviously, um, how the Earth is changing, because unfortunately we are in a, a, an era of massive uh, change to our Earth. Um, and 
traditionally that has very much been about environmental change. You know, what's going on uh, on our land surface within within the ocean and how is that changing as a result usually of anthropogenic uh, influences. But more and more recently, I've been looking at how we can use this brilliant technology to look at some human rights um, issues. So, so pivoting the, the lens towards uh, humanitarian uh, pressures that, um, that we see manifesting itself. Sometimes as a result of uh, environmental issues, for instance, climate change, but um, sometimes as a result just the pure greed and criminal activities that uh, some humans get up to. So that that's a really good place to start because this was one of the this was where we first sort of saw your work. I mean, I've been looking through your papers and you've you've done an awful lot of different like you said, loads and loads of different applications of remote sensing for lots of different things. But let let's start with this one that the the yeah, the, the 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 human slave trade is where we we first saw it, wasn't it, Jamie? And can you yeah. can you tell us a little bit more about how you use satellite data and which satellites actually were were involved in actually helping you work out what was going on? Yeah, sure. Um, you're not the first person to have said, yeah, you've been working on stuff for 20 years, but actually it's the stuff recently that, uh, that we like. But um... No, no, I, lo- I, I love it all. We'll get, we'll get onto it. I, I, saw your, I saw your mapping stuff as well. Don't, don't worry. I'm going to get uh, onto that as okay, well. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> no, so, uh, so, I mean, obviously working at a university means you've got, you know, loads of people working um, on very different things from a very different sort of background, training and perspective. And we had a, um, a gentleman uh, join us, uh, Professor Kevin Bales, and he's been, his, his title is Professor of, uh, of, uh, of Modern Slavery. And so he joined the university um, and he has been working on modern slavery for the last 20, 30 years. And uh, he, you know, explained to us that there was a real issue around counting the number of uh, of, of um, slaves there are um, around the globe uh, today, and then you know raising people's awareness of the fact that actually, um, I think most people think about the historical slave trade and and that's it. But actually, it's still still very prevalent. So there are forty million um, people um, enslaved today right across the globe. Um, so that's quite a significant proportion. Of, uh, of the population. And he also explained how the United Nations had recognised that this was a, an issue with respect to sustainable development and, uh, you know, the progress of, of, of the globe as a, as a community and uh, uh, for sustainability. And uh, so we now have a sustainable development goal target, um, 8.7, which is to end modern slavery. And it wants to do that by 2030. Well, if you're going to do something, you need to understand um, much better what you're trying to address. If you're going to put any anti-slavery legislation in, uh, policy, uh, stuff like down at the grassroots level um, to, to prevent slavery from happening. So, um, so one of the big issues is we don't know exactly how many uh, people are, are affected. Um, and so he had come across literally looking at Google Earth Engine. Um, sorry, just Google Earth at, at that time. He he was looking through, flicking through, as we all do. Oh, look, there's my house. I can see my house. But uh, <laughs> he'd been 
he'd been working in in India and uh, the neighbouring countries, Pakistan and uh, Nepal and Bangladesh, um, and and the, the reports on the ground were that um, there were these um, an industry, brick making industry. So we have brick kilns, um, and they use a high uh, level of, uh, of bonded labour, and that is a form of, uh, of modern slavery. So he said, we, we, we can see on the ground and we know by talking to people that um, they are enslaved, but we have no idea how many brick kilns there are operating across this whole region. We don't know whether there will be more added year on year. Um, we don't know if, there, if any intervention that happens is, is having an impact and those, those sorts of things. And, you know, people know about what they know locally but they don't know, you know, what they don't know. Mm. Um, so you have non-governmental organisations work on it, working in a little patch that they're they're doing the best they can and they're helping these uh, people. But they don't know what, you know, is, is that a splash in the ocean, or or actually is that making a a, a big um, a big wave uh, in terms of uh, anti-slavery? So the first thing we started to do was, oh, okay, let let's just come up with an estimate of uh, how many brick kilns there, there are across this uh, brick belt region, as it's called. Now, um, if you look at the literature, so the um, Anti-Slavery International or the International Labour Organization, they come up with some figures that say, in Pakistan, in this particular area, we know there are these many kilns and that 70% of the people working in the kilns are working there under bonded labour conditions. So it's all very isolated and it's out of date as well. I mean, some of these studies go back to uh, the early 2000s. So with satellite technology, what we have a very fortunate position where um, we now have a, um, a resolution in our data, i.e. the pixel sizes that make up our data, are much smaller than this feature that we were trying to, to look at, which is a brick kiln. So you can see them. Anyone can see them. They, they're really, really distinctive. Um, so the first thing we did was like, OK, let, let's really explore the, the size of this problem. So we did some sampling. So literally a bit like um, an ecologist might do with a quadrat where you go around and you put a quadrat on the floor and you count how many flowers there are in that quadrat or whatever. We did exactly the same. And, and looked at the very high spatial resolution data you get. And this was literally browsing uh, Google Earth. And we sampled, so we came up with a statistical, start again, statistically robust uh, measure of how many samples we'd need to, uh, to take and then literally visually look within um, this uh, region and said, okay, here are these many kilns, and then use the, the statistical methodology to scale right across the area. And it's a big area. It's around 1.5 million uh, kilometres squared in, in area. Wow. And that gave us, that gave us uh, an estimate of around 55,000 uh, kilns with an error estimate, as scientists always uh, would put down, of, you know, 5,000 above and 5,000 below. So around that kind of... Um, area in terms of uh, numbers. So, so that was the first thing, and people started to kind of realise, okay, so 
if I'm working in this small area here and I'm freeing, you know, 10 slaves every six months, uh, well, you know, that, that, that's a drop in the ocean in terms of how many kilns there are right across this, uh, this region. Um, then we uh, realised that it's all very well having um, a scale of things. Uh, what people really want to know is where the kilns are. Um, and, uh, and, you know, all the new ones that are popping up um, in response to, usually it's basically population growth and the, the need for bricks. So we've used um, machine learning methods there. So um, essentially um, it's a methodology that uses the, the kind of shape of the kilns and they are very distinctive, as I said, they're around 100 metres long, about sort of 50 metres wide, around that. But they are oval. They look like basically running tracks. They have a chimney. Um, and, you know, the very high-resolution data uh, we get from satellites now, you can see, in the, you know, the piles of bricks that are being produced. You can see the bricks moving around the kiln and being fired. So that's the sort of level of detail we can get now. So... Um, we trained up the uh, convolutional neural network using crowdsourcing data. So we worked with Digital Globe and their Tomnod platform and um, also Zooniverse to basically put up on online lots of these uh, images. So Digital Globe um, provided the imagery to, to put up. And, they, um, and we have volunteers from all over uh, just look through the imagery and say, ah, yes, after the kiln, no, there's no kiln there, uh, and so on. Um, and then we've also compared the sort of quality of the, the response we get from these uh, um, volunteers versus the response we get from people who are actually paid to do this sort of work as well, sit at home and, and do their work. And, and it's really interesting how your sort of um, the reason for doing something, your passion for doing something, makes you a better tagger of, of uh, imagery than... Yeah. Uh, you're being paid you know so there's a whole there's a whole really interesting um element there we were then able to feed the convolutional neural network and and that gave us the um the location of every single kiln um and that brought the estimate up to around uh i think it was sixty-five thousand five hundred and sixty. 560 uh, don't quote me on that but uh, that's off, off my head um and then we started to think, well, you know what? The beauty, again, of the uh, satellite technology is that it's been operating now in terms of sort of environmental um, um, work uh, for the last 50 years. So, so the Landsat uh, series of satellites, um, which is uh, from NASA and the uh, United States Geological Survey, um, that's, we're on on Landsat 8 as a satellite, um, and 9 is being launched um, in the not-too-distant future. So what that gives us uh, an ability to do is actually look back through time and uh, to look at when the when new kilns started to, to come on stream and, and, you know, was there a, a pattern in terms of where they were located, did they tend to be clustered and that kind of thing. So we use a different machine learning technique there, which is called random forest, to um, train the satellite um, Landsat data um, to recognise when a kiln appears in the imagery. Um, 
And so we now have, for every single year, uh, from um, 1988, every kiln um, across time. And if you then marry that up with another satellite um, uh, technique, which is uh, what we call night nighttime light, which you may well have come across. So you've probably seen pictures of um, countries where you've got you know light on the uh, on the picture, um, and you can see that you know if you're looking at England, you can see London, um, and you can see sort of the the uh, outlying towns of the southeast, and then it goes a bit black. And but all that data has been really useful in other other studies to track population where population lives. Um, and if we link that nighttime light data to the evolution over time of the kiln, you get more or less a one-to-one relationship. And what that tells you is, okay, if population growth and the demand for new buildings that's um, driving the, you know, a new kiln uh, to be established, but it also tells you that the supply chain for those bricks are local. Right. So, right. so you know, um, so there's a lot of worry at the moment about slavery in supply chains. Um, a big one um, is your mobile phone um, using lithium in the battery. And uh, most of that lithium comes from one particular country that we have a, a really good idea that um, there is some, you know, again, modern slavery being used. Um, but it's really hard to track back through a supply chain what, what's going on. So that's kind of work we're, we're doing at the moment. But so, you know, in, in summary, uh, you know, a combination of different satellite technologies. So you've got the nighttime lights, you've got the sort of um, more coarser Landsat data, which goes back 50 years nearly now. And then you've got the, you know, up-to-date, very high-resolution data. Um, and it's thinking about, you know, what combination of those uh, data sets is going to, um, you know, t- um, answer the question that we're, we're, we're posing. Um, so, we're, you know, we are a really exciting time for Earth observation. And, and that's going to, you know, you've you, you mentioned that, the last 20 years I've been working on XYZ, uh, so that, that's going to continue and, and the applications for this technology will, I think, um, really start to proliferate in ways that people perhaps hadn't, hadn't thought about previously. That is absolutely fascinating. I mean, just to hear the the, the, the level of, of deep, I mean, how much of it is a cat and mouse game in terms of do these people who are making the kilns, are they aware of what work you're doing? And is it, is it anything that they're trying to cover up? No, we're not. No, that's, that, that's, a, um, that's a really good question. No, we're not at, at that kind of um, stage yet. We're working with local NGOs to help them in their work. Um, but there isn't that kind of, oh, you know, we're being spied on from, from space. Um, sure. That isn't uh, sure. where. What's an NGO? Sorry, a, a non-governmental organisation. So, got it. Civil um, action groups who want to address this particular problem, and sure. you know there is an element of these industries. Um, so there's kind of mining as well. Uh, there's illegal logging, all that stuff that goes on. It's pretty well kind of established in the day-to-day lives in you know in certain places. 
Um, and so, you know, to, to affect uh, a change requires, uh, you know, a lot of um, um, action. So it won't be just the case of, oh, look, here's our map. You know, it will be, uh, I think, you know, a long, a long process of uh, saying, look, we, we do know what's going on. We know better what's going on. So perhaps working more with, uh, with policymakers in countries to say, you know, you can't now sort of say we don't understand the scale of it or, um, and, you, know, in, you know, deny that anything's happening because there is stuff that we can get from space that perhaps sure. hasn't been appreciated before. So it's that, you know, it's that dialogue that, that, that needs to happen. Um, so, yeah, so that's where we are at the moment, starting that dialogue and really trying to um, make people, anyone that could affect change, appreciate the power of this, uh, this data and the technology uh, going forward. Because I'm sure that those on, on the ground that can affect change can actually inform us more about what 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 data might be useful and then we can think oh could we could we um get that from from the satellite data that's really fascinating Incredible. you've been doing this a long time uh it is it fair to say that you've been building up a sort of toolbox of various different skills i mean i noticed that one of your papers was uh, about training these um machine learning uh, algorithms with mi mixed objects and things like that and so you're you're yeah. building up this kind of huge toolkit of being able to uh, apply this kind of these techniques to to lots of different um, scenarios, including vegetation, slavery, and and all sorts of things. Um, is that is that right? Is that a, is that a fair analysis of your work so far? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I, you know, my training is in in environmental science. So. Um, so I started off, you know, the, the, the geography A level and did geography at uh, university, that kind of thing. Um, so it, I, you know, I wouldn't ever be able to compete with a computer scientist who has, you know, a much better um, toolbox, you know, um, in terms of, um, you know, maybe a particular area. But what I can appreciate is right. Okay, so this is this is a particular issue problem on the ground. Um, I know that all this data um, is available and, and it changed over time. It's fully calibrated now from a lot of um, um, space agencies. So sort of the government-sponsored um, agencies like European Space Agency and uh, the Japanese Space Agency and um, so on, they, they, they're producing data now that's, that's fully calibrated so that you can, you know, literally kind of, use it without having to worry about differences across time and space, which is really, really exciting. And then saying, right, okay, so this is a problem. What is the best data set to use? And then what is the best an analytical technique to, to employ? So I wouldn't ever develop um, you know, a machine learning method myself, for example, but I would be able to go to you know, the literature, let's say the computer science or computer vision literature and say, this is what I need it to do. Ah, here we go. Here's something here. And like you say, add it to the toolbox um, that uh, I would then say, right, off we go. Here's the, here's the output that we've got that we can then use to address this problem. Um, so, you know, I think that's far more exciting than developing X or Y or Z. So, uh, 
Um, I love the fact that, you know, it's that kind of holistic overview of here's the problem, here's the data, here's the analysis we can do, bang. Uh, absolutely. I, I, I absolutely love that idea of having the, being the person that's sort of saying, oh, these are all the things we can do with this technology. Because often uh, when we talk about satellites and we talk about Earth observation, it's quite hard for us to realise just how many applications it it genuinely has. Is there is there anything really interesting uh, as an application uh, that, that you're working on now or have worked on that you thought was a really niche and clever way of using satellite data? The, obviously, the human mind stuff is... Um is really exciting um but we're also um i've got some colleagues uh within school geography um and i have been working on this idea of um essential uh geodiversity variables so what we have so far is a whole load of um parameters and variables that we can extract from satellite imagery and there's what we call the essential climate variables uh, so things that relate to, to climate, to tell you about how the climate's um, doing. So things like temperature and pressure and those sorts of things that um, a particular niche of satellite data can do for you. Um, and then we have essential biodiversity variables. Um, and as the name suggests, that, that relates to what's going on in our vegetation. So things like... Um, you know, um, the leaf area index, um, the height, those sorts of things that tell us how our vegetation is doing, its distribution, its species, that kind of thing. So we felt that there was a, a missing link here, and that was in terms of kind of what's below that vegetation. Um, and, of course, not everywhere has vegetation. And... Uh, and so we've, we've labelled that the essential geodiversity um, variables. Um, and that's something we're really excited about in, in terms of, you know, having that sort of jigsaw to give us that holistic look on the, the health of the planet and how the planet's doing. Um, and so our uh, big focus now is uh, to try and develop um, ways, algorithms, the toolbox to extract those essential geodiversity variables from satellite data um, that then can be, you know, plugged into X, Y, and Z to answer questions around how how the planet's doing. So that's probably um, the the other exciting things that uh, I'm working on at the moment. But then there are there are loads of other ones. Uh, there's stuff relating to. Um, lianas in in our tropical rainforest i don't know whether you've come across lianas before they're the sorts of things that um um the uh that tarzan would says he he was swinging on but he wasn't okay. because they they're, <laughs> they're fixed <laughs> on the ground and they go up they go they're like vines they go up the canopy um and then once they're into the canopy of the the tree what they do is they they have really quite large leaves um, and prevalent leaves that can then smother the canopy, and that's the real issue for uh, how how tropical forests function. Um, so we're working on 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 using remote sensing technology, not so much satellite, because obviously 
the the resolution of this is much smaller but then using you know um unoccupied aerial systems so uh um, drone technology where you can deploy it and get much closer to the top of the canopy to look at these uh, particular um, lianas and then again get a better idea of where they're distributed, how much and so on, um, which is really uh, that fascinating as well, sort of taking what I've learned from the satellite world and applying it to um, the, the, the drone world um, and uh, that's uh, I would say a lot of um, people who've worked in uh, satellite remote sensing are, are starting to do that now because you have more autonomy over you know, where you collect your data. Well, yeah, talking of autonomy, is is this new, I guess, the fact that universities and other sort of smaller uh, organisations that aren't governments are able to launch small satellites you know you know cubesats and microsats and stuff is that is that something that's mm. is that is that something that's blowing up in in academia in terms of trying to solve a lot of these problems yeah the um organization i've worked with quite a lot over the last year on the slavery work has been planet i don't know whether you've come yeah. across them yeah, yeah. Before. yeah so you know working closely with uh, with andrew zoli who's um, who's one of the vps at, uh, at planet and what's really fascinating there is how you know it's it, uh, these guys who were NASA scientists then sort of said, oh, let, let, let's go launch these microsats, but let's launch lots of them as a, a, a massive constellation to give us, uh, again, an unprecedented view of, of, the, of the globe. Like daily at three metres spatial resolution is, uh, is really unprecedented. But, the, you know, the concept is quite simple. If you have a lot, many, many of these uh, um, microsatellites satellites orbiting at the same time, but under one... Um, you know, autonomy, one, one company, um, then again, you can calibrate that data and um, you can, uh, the application's uh, potential is, is, is amazing. In terms of the um, sort of at university level, um, we are talking with um, our engineers about, well, you know, if we design something that would be um, perhaps focused on a particular slavery issue in a particular locality could we do this and and they're very much yeah yeah of course you know we can design something and then and then go for it um i mean obviously cost is an issue there <laughs> it's not as, uh, as 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 costly as it, it it might be um because if the more people that do this then obviously you would sort of have a you know a cooperative if you like um because it's the launch that's really um, expensive, apparently. So, you know, so you could all sort of start to think about how you might um, work together uh, to, to go forward. But certainly the kind of microsatellite CubeSat side of uh, uh, remote sensing is very exciting. But then you have to start to think about all that clutter that's in, the, in space. Um, and that's a, a whole other issue, isn't it? Yeah, so it's fascinating. It's something we know very little about, which is why I think me and Matt have both got a billion questions. But we won't ask a billion. Don't worry. Um, but I, I did. You did mention the health of the planet. Obviously, I mean, back in 2015, uh, you helped write a paper that was titled "Detecting the Effects of Hydrocarbon Pollution in the Amazon Forest Using Hyperspectral Satellite Images." And obviously, with climate change being a daily thing in our press right now how are satellites currently providing data what's the latest i think the probably the latest 
data provision that we've all seen is that on the fires in the uh, particularly in the Amazon, that's been a, a real um, concern um, because you know obviously you've got the pulse of uh, CO2 as well as other uh, pollutants going into the atmosphere, which are obviously radiated active gases, which uh, cause uh, climate change. Um, and but then you you know um, you you lose biodiversity that way uh, and, and so on. So um, we can track exactly where the fires are, um, and then we can track the fire scars once the uh, the fire is out. So that's a quite a, a common um, application of uh, of uh, using satellite remote sensing, certainly. And then the same is is happening in Indonesia at the moment as well. Um, and then you have other satellites that um, will monitor what's going on in the atmosphere itself. So being able to measure um, you know, the pollutants that are released, being able to measure the amount of um, carbon in the atmosphere, um, CO2 um, and oxygen, those sorts of uh, atmospheric gases, um, that's something that, uh, again, satellites will do for you. Um, and then it's the change in in the land cover you know what the the land is is, is being used for obviously that's another ap, um, application and then you've got all the marine um sort of sea surface temperature uh, measurements as well so um you know you can't you can't do um sort of climate change um science without the satellites anymore it's that they're, they're a major source of sort of data um, yeah. which is, you know, essentially why there is so much money um, invested in them. And is there is there anything that we can do to help? I mean, what can our listeners do to to, to help in any way? In, in terms of, of changing behaviour, in terms of helping helping satellites with their job? Well, you, yeah. you, you, you mentioned earlier on, I, there's something I hadn't made a connection. You, you mentioned the Zooniverse uh, yeah. ty- type, yeah. type things. Is, is that, is, yeah. are, are there other applications where, yeah, it's, it's a bit like trying to find uh, dust devils on Mars yeah. and things like that. Presumably there are yeah. environmental ones. Yeah, yeah no, this is uh, that's a really good question. This is something that um, I'm hoping to put in a, a grant for. You know, I think you, you mentioned, uh, you know, looking at uh, Mars. Um, absolutely. Um, that, I think, in terms of citizen science and, uh, and using, um, you know, the power of the crowd, as it were, to add uh, data, you know, rich data to imagery analysis is a, a huge um, area that, um, again, could explode. Um, and I guess now everyone does, you know, most people do have access to the internet. Most people will have the ability to to view an image um, and you could even do it on, on your phone. Um, and there are platforms, as you say, like Zooniverse, um, and then there's uh, the more commercially privately owned ones like uh, Tom Nod that we were working with. Um, yeah, so if you if you can look out for any projects to get involved with, then uh, that would be uh, brilliant. Um, another a common one is to to count the number of uh, penguins on Antarctica. <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> Love it. Um, you know, it's it's it, it's fun. Um, it's a really nice use of of your time, and and it's appreciating that you are adding you know valuable data to to a to a project, and and you know I guess from a scientist point of view the big thing is the big question is always 
or what the quality of that data going to be. But then that's our job to building, you know, robust ways of accommodating for uh, or or at least estimating the quality of data and thinking about how you accommodate for data that might not be the quality that you, you, you might collect yourself. But, you know, from what I've seen, particularly in terms of the Brookhill's work, you know, people who do this um, want to do it well. You know, they want to do it uh, to help. Um, and it's fascinating when you read the, the um, online comments that, um, uh, you know, people sort of, you know, say, oh, well, have you found this and have you found that? And, and the, 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 the sort of reasons why they're doing this comes across loud and clear. And, they, you know, people do want to make a difference. Um, in, in their full-time job, they're doing something that might not remotely be, be linked. Um, but, you know, in their own time, they can, uh, they can really help. I think we should definitely put some links up. Um, if you wanted to email us across any, any helpful links or anything that you've mentioned, we can stick that up on our, on our sites and get people, uh, get people working. I think people would love to help. Yeah, thank you. I've actually one question's come to mind, which is kind of the next stage up. If I was studying a, a subject at, at, as a postgrad, or even or or even as a as a graduate, would where did you where where is the best place to try and get some of this uh, calibrated data? Is it something you have to apply for, or is or is all this stuff actually available freely, open source? Oh yeah, I mean the, um, the the stuff from NASA and European Space Agency and so on. It's all open source. Um, and actually, Google Earth Engine that I mentioned before is a really good place to start. So they're starting Google are starting to pull in and ingest some of these data sets now. So you don't even have to go and look for them. You essentially go to Google Earth Engine and you say, "I'm interested in this locality," and it will tell you all the data sets that are available. And then now it's starting to pull in the uh, the analytics uh, capability from Google, like TensorFlow and so on, um, which means that actually, if you want to do X and you kind of understand that this particular algorithm or machine learning method can help you, you don't even have to apply it. You know, you don't have to go and find it. It's there in Google Earth Engine. You press the uh, the button and, uh, and wow. off it goes. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, we are at that. Is there anything that Google doesn't know? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> well. I mean, it, it's like it's read my emails. It's yeah. <laughs> and it's quite... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that that level of data is incredible, isn't it? Going back to the modern slavery thing, did you ever have any contact with anyone that you helped save, whether in in their location or just electronically? No, about you know those who are best placed to um to, to to do the work on the ground so sure. that's what that's about um you know we, we we've been involved in initiatives like um there's an initiative called uh, code 8.7 um which is spun out of uh, another initiative called delta 8.7 which is essentially tracking the progress of um everybody in the globe uh on the globe uh, progress towards meeting that sustainable development goal target 8.7 to, to end modern slavery. So that come out of the uh, United Nations. And um, so code 8.7 is saying, right, okay, so what can we do to exploit and use 
the big artificial intelligence movement and computational uh, science that's out there. So, um, so the, the 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 project slavery from space, as we we called it, is is um is is one as part of that kind of example of what technology and um, and computation can do for you. There, there's a number of other. Uh, project. So, yeah, that might be a nice link to, to um, send across to you. So um, you can see what we're, we're doing there. And the big, uh, the big idea we have now is kind of a bit like a Google Earth engine sort of data cube type uh, vision is that we have one for anti-slavery. So sort of a global um, anti-slavery observatory where we, we bring in all sorts of data sets that would you might not even think would be remotely related to uh, modern slavery. But if we can um, bring them together, do some cool data analytics uh, with them, then that gives us uh, a number of things. We could look at sort of vulnerability of uh, certain localities to uh, uh, an activity uh, around slavery that might be happening sort of next year, for example, you know, if there was an area that was prone to flooding, what, what does that mean for the, the population living there? Where would they go? Um, so there's that kind of vulnerability analysis, then there's the kind of prevalence analysis of what's happening now. Um, and obviously satellite data would be one, one part of that observatory. Um, but there are other data sets like financial records, um, mobile phone records. Um, there'd be data sets that, you know, um, private organisations might be holding on to that we have no clue about, uh, but they may come up, you know, they, they may come to the fore and say, you know, we, we, we'd really like to join you on this initiative to, you know, help end modern slavery. Um, so that's our, our next big thing coming out the rights lab in, in particular. That is really, really interesting it's so, stuff. It's so interesting. It's something that I'm, I've been really aware of is when we talk about technology and we talk about space, it's often there's a huge disconnect between that and environmental issues and, mm. and human and, well, human rights issues. It's never really yeah. come up, which is why we want to talk about it. And mm. it, it, because I think that a lot of people are anti-space or don't even understand its don't understand that actually it's vital if we want to understand uh, climate change, for example, and things like that. Yeah. So it's really, really brilliant that you've that you've come on and and uh, opened our eyes up to some really, really fascinating possibilities. Alan, please. I think I think we should uh, speak more about this. And uh, if you'd like to come back on ever, we'd love to have you because this is fascinating. Maybe we can make this an annual thing. I can give you some updates. So that'd be really cool. We'd love that. Yeah, that really would be cool. That'd yeah. be fantastic. I've noticed recently <laughs> that there's that that uh, Strato launch is the 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 big balloon that can that can stay fairly static over a, over a uh, over a site that doesn't that uh, that is quite low altitude. So I'm presumably that right. those kind of technologies are going to start coming in and, and are going to be really useful for the type of thing that you're doing. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole I mean that could be classified as a as a as a drone. There are various ways in which you classify um mm. drones. I mean, do people are people on them or is this unoccupied? Well, no, that there's both actually. I think Strata Launch are going to right. at some point have a man a manned version, yeah. But uh, Okay, yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, um, you stick a sensor on it, whatever that might be, and it will take measurements. Um, 
so yeah absolutely um anything if, if you've got that stability that really does help you don't have to correct for the pitch your and roll kind of uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, side of things yeah i mean i i as you can imagine over the last sort of 25 years i've come across all sorts of things um and uh the kind of balloon side of things haven't really taken off um as much as I thought it might do. So sort of about, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, we, we thought about balloon technology for looking at rainforests and, and getting up close. Um, and and it, it didn't, that didn't take off, pardon the pun, um, yeah. because, um, you know, of the turbulence and things that you might get, uh, you know, at the top of the canopy. I think we wanted to get really close so we could do some destructive sampling as well as remote sampling. Um, but, you know, now with uh, with with UAV, particularly the, the quadcopters where you can, you know, navigate through the canopy up to the up to the top. Um, and each one of these are about a thousand pounds a piece now. Um Mm. so that's really really accessible but yeah now i can see um kites as well uh that's uh another growth area for uh remote sensing so putting uh cameras and things on on a kite and flying an area is uh fascinating as well wow so yeah you must have seen a lot of changes since you've worked in mm. on these remote sensing devices yeah yeah, no, absolutely, um, and it's uh, you know it was hard to begin with because you had to you had to do a lot of pre-processing to get what you needed, which meant the kind of the application and data analysis um, was a very small proportion of the project. Whereas now the data arrives, you know, you press a button, so you can spend much more time doing the the applied uh, stuff and getting the useful information out, uh, and that's that's always going to be a i think a win the future bodes well for you know sort of 10 20 years time doesn't it absolutely yeah it's a really what a really exciting thing to be getting into right now i think yeah definitely i I, matt are you like me gonna jump on google earth in a minute i i know i absolutely am (laughs) i definitely am (laughs) i think that's 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 really exciting i haven't looked at google earth for ages doreen you've been a star we think you're an absolute hero and God bless what you do. So thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for your your, your attention. Oh, brilliant. Absolute thank pleasure. You very, th- thanks very we much. We will be in touch. You won't get rid of us now, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, have a great weekend and um, we will speak to you soon. All right. Brilliant. Cheers, guys. Bye. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive. Isn't she wonderful, I did really, really enjoy that chat. And like you said, it was one of those ones, very hard to do, because people like Doreen are extremely busy and have done... You should see the amount of papers she's written. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, to be honest, the the fact that she had about an hour to speak to us idiots is... Is phenomenal. Is scary. phenomenal. Um, But we thank her very much. Doreen, thank you so much. You're a legend. And, um, you know, please continue to... Follow her on Twitter. She's got a great Twitter account. And that's that's how I started to get in touch with her. And um, I think we should have her on again in 2020. See what she's up to. Mm-hmm. So, Jamie, talking of legends, if people wanted yeah. to get closer to the legend that is Jamie Franklin, how would they do yeah. that? Well, it's very easy. You head over to the now infamous website that is www interplanetary 
www.ofcourse.org.uk. You'll find everything there. But, but Matt, if I want to know what kind of things, what would be there? Well, I, I'm hoping you would find some form of blog that would go along with each of the podcasts so that, you know, yeah. you could check back on things and follow links to things like Doreen's work, for example. And yes. uh, you could maybe find a little merch store there and, and most excitingly, find a click that takes you to Patreon. Now you're talking. What are the benefits of of Patreon, The Matt? Patreon is there so to reward you and me, Jamie, who do this for free, just for the love of it. Yeah, but it's do. it's 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 our listeners' chance to say thank you and to join in the conversation. I cannot tell you, and I, I say this every week, how much I enjoy the interactions with the Discord. They're absolute legends on there, always sending very, very cool things. I really enjoy all the other listeners that, that send in stuff and interact on tr Twitter and send us new things on Instagram. So it's brilliant when people join up and I see it's great actually when there's someone that follows us on Instagram or someone that follows us on Twitter and then suddenly you see them appear on Patreon. It's something that it feels, uh, feels it amazing. It warms our heart. And you guys control the show, you know. We just ramble on about nonsense and um, you guys can direct us. Uh, so if you'd like to direct us, I know some of you would like to direct us into traffic, um, but if you'd like to direct the show, Join up. Oh, and it will probably stop Jamie being so grumpy. What will? If people join up. <laughs> what will? <laughs> you reckon? So, <laughs> it will make us happier. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It will probably stop you being so grumpy. I'm not grumpy. <laughs> I, I was annoyed with you earlier yeah. today, but that's, our, oh. that's just because you were being a dickhead. Well, yeah, that's my birthright. Well, Matt, what are you up to this weekend? I feel like I say this every week, but I've got loads of marking to do, which is like it is <sighs> the it is the it is the bane of lecturers' lives, I'd imagine. So boring. Yeah, boring doesn't cover it, Jamie. It's it's just harsh. <laughs> it's just a is that why you're harsh with me? Because I, of all the marking you do, you have to take it out on I someone. I think that's what it was, Jamie. I've been, I've literally Is that what it was? sat at my computer all day long. Well, Matt, I'm going to forgive you. And I'd, um, I'd like to tell you now that I've bought us tickets as a Christmas present. Whoa. Are you ready yeah, for yeah. this? To go and see our favourite other podcast, not about space, Atletico Mints Live. Oh, my God. In Brighton. I had to wait hours this morning in the queue online because I'm a because I'm a Club Parsnips member and I got us two tickets. So put it in your diary, 21st of January in Brighton. Oh, yes. Hove, actually. Oh, yes. So there we go. Happy oh, Christmas, man. That's Matt. genius. Well done, Jamie. Um, so I'm off to um, form a wispy cosmic web. So I bid you all farewell. <laughs> oh, wow. On that bombshell, au revoir. Spodcat. Ta-ta. Ta-ta.